Our sermon this afternoon is from Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled 1 Peter, Part 3. Hello again. So, as those of you that know me can attest, I'm not a big fan of Mr. Jefferson. I am, after all, English-born, right? So, I mean, he kind of caused a lot of trouble a while back. But not because of that. I just don't like how he did things. He didn't respect the English crown, and I understand why. There was some minor grievances about marshalling troops and taxes without representation. It's not because of that either. Of all the founding fathers, I think Jefferson was um, maybe the least courageous. When the British came to his plantation, he ran away. And he never actually joined the army. So, why do I tell you this? Well, because in spite of that, and I will say my favorite founding father is John Adams, by the way. But in spite of maybe my dislike for Jefferson, he did say something really interesting and very profound. Something that was prophetic, and at the same time, incorrect. He wrote a letter to his good friend John Adams. And this was a while after all the trouble that they started. And, and they had become friends again after years of being uh, enemies politically, obviously, for the presidency. And this was a letter he wrote in September the 12th, 1821. He said, kind of jumping into part, part, part way through this letter, he says, these, my dear friend, are speculations for a new generation. And he'd been talking about troubles in Europe and, and that despotism was on the rise again and what, what could be possibly done about that. And he said, well, these speculations for a new generation as before, <coughs> as before they will be resolved. You and I must join our deceased brother Floyd. Yet, I will not believe our labors are lost. I shall not die without a hope that light and liberty are on a steady advance. We have seen indeed once within the recorded record of history a complete eclipse of the human mind for continuing for centuries, and this too by swarms of the same northern barbarians, conquering and taking possession of the countries and governments of the civilized world. Should this be again attempted should the same northern hordes allured again by the corn and wine and oil of the south be able again to settle their swarms in the countries of their growth? The art of printing alone and the vast dissemination of books will maintain the mind where it is and raise the conquering ruffians to the level of the conquered instead of degrading those to that of their conquerors. And even should the cloud of barbarism and despotism again obscure the science and liberties of Europe, this country 
remains to preserve and restore light and liberty to them. In short, the flames kindled on the 4th of July, 1776, have spread over too much of the globe to be extinguished by the feeble engines of despotism. On the contrary, they will consume these engines and all who work them. It's really an interesting uh, letter, and it's an interesting concept that it's almost a prophecy. Because when we look at history since that time, the United States has twice allied itself with the Allied powers, with Britain and others, to beat back the forces of despotism. And then you add to that the Cold War, which the United States burdened itself. And it did, in a certain way, carry this torch for light and liberty forward into the world. So Jefferson was right but not completely right. His assertions were and are predicated on the assumption that the flames kindled on the 4th of July, as he said, 1776, cannot be put out. But is that true? It's interesting. Curtis just talked about another nation earlier today that had an incredible level of freedom and liberty. So much so that every man could do what was right in his own eye. And yet, where is that free nation today? It didn't survive. And it doesn't exist. So you might say, well, what does all of this have to do with the first letter that Peter wrote? Well, there was that nation. And there has been this nation. And you could argue maybe one or two other nations that have been a light to the world and then failed. So, what does that have to do with 1 Peter chapter 2? Well, let's pick it back up. Kind of stepping a little back to where we were uh, on, on my earlier message on this. Peter says, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. There's a lot going on in this passage, and I've touched upon some of it last time. And there's even more to dig into here. As I mentioned last time, Peter is saying that we are being built into this spiritual house. A house for God to dwell in. This is something that we wrestle with. We still wrestle to understand in some ways. God is building us into this house. He's building us into a house. This concept 
is the reverse of what mankind thinks about God and about who is doing the building. It's the opposite to how we have constantly thought about places of worship and where God is going to reside. All the way back in 2 Samuel, <coughs> verse, uh, chapter 7 and verse 1, we find David, right, trying to build a house for God. We're familiar with that story. He says, now as it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him brass from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So, Nathan and David make this assumption, don't they? Oh yeah, if you're doing it for God, he'll be fine with it. Um, what could possibly be wrong with wanting to build a house for God? Well, as it happened, that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go down there and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Would you really? Would you really build a house for me? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even so to this day, but I've moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of secret? Where did you get this idea? That I wanted a house to be built for me. I've never said this. I've never asked for it. Now, therefore, thus says... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be the ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off your enemies from before you, and have made your name great, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint my place, appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore. They'll be free. They'll be free from oppression. As previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And this is the reverse of how we think and how David was thinking. And we can read later that yes, God does allow Solomon to build a house. But by all accounts, this was never God's plan. And we've studied this before. He didn't want Israel or David or any of the kings of Judah or the judges or the priests or the prophets. He didn't want any of them to build him a house. He never asked for one. Instead, what he has said he is doing all along is making a house for us and for himself to dwell in. And that's what Peter is trying to get us to understand here. We don't build houses for God 
It is God that is building a house for us and himself. We see it at every level. In John chapter 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. They will come and make, our, make their abode, their house, in us. We will become their house. Paul reinforces this point in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has the righteous with lawless? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Bilal? And what part has the believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We are, collectively and individually, a house for God. He dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. He has given us the promise of our redemption. Who made your house? Who made the body that you dwell in? you put it together when you were in the womb? Did you join up the cells? Did you have any input whatsoever on the color of your eyes, the shape of your face, the length and the style of your hair? Well, maybe we can stylize it a little bit. But its natural condition, we had nothing to do with it. God makes us a house. And he puts us in it. He makes us. So the very notion that we can make a house for God is laughable. It's silly. That we can make a house for him to dwell in. He made us to be a house for him to dwell in. That's from the very beginning. In fact, Renee and I were talking about this this morning. That's why we have value. That is why that we are precious, more precious than any other created being to him. Because we are built for him, by him, and for him to dwell in through his Holy Spirit with us. This is what Israel failed to understand. This is what David and even Solomon, he touched on it a little bit, but he failed to really understand it. The temple, Solomon's great engineering wonder, became something that Curtis touched upon earlier. Just like the ark, it became an idol. Well, as long as we have the temple, as long as we have that, then we're strong. God is with us. And, and we can go there, and we can follow our practices, and we can sacrifice, and we can get redemption, and, and we're good as long as we have this house. It became an idol. And if you don't believe me, let's see what Jeremiah, or what God said through Jeremiah in chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah <clears throat> from the Lord, saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. So what did Jeremiah do? Well, he went to the gate of the Lord's house, and he stood there, and he cried out to the people. 
And remember, Jeremiah wasn't known as a positive guy. He was the prophet of doom and gloom. And the minute they hear his voice, they're like, what is going to happen now? Right? So he stood there and he said, hear the word of the Lord. All you of Judah who enter at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings. And I will cause you to dwell in this place. And not just in that temple. But in that land. In that country that they had been given. And mend your ways and your doings. And I will build you a house. I will cause you to live in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Are thee. And we get this sense that this is, a, this is a, an affirmation, this is a, a proverb or something said in their society to say, well, we've got the temple, we're going to be safe. We've got strength. We've got a place, a religious center. He says, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Again, what place? In the temple? Well, sure. But in a larger sense, he means in this place that I have given you, this country that I have given you to dwell in, this nation that you're in. And do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt. Then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. If we amend our ways. If they amended their ways. And what did they need to change? Well clearly they were shedding innocent blood. They were going after other gods and other practices. As Curtis touched upon. They were doing the opposite. To what this place was supposed to inspire them to do. So in the end, this temple becomes an idol. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house? That's what they were doing. They were doing all these crimes, this wickedness. And then come into the house. All right, I got my sacrifice. I can clean this mess up once a week or every day or how often as they did it. God's like, really? He's calling them on it. You're going to do all of these things and then come and stand in this place which is called by my name? Pretty outrageous. But what about us? Because we are the temple, aren't we? Isn't that what Peter just said? Peter said, we are the temple. So we're going to go run out and do these crimes. We're going to sin. We're going to live in opposition. And the name of God is on our, on our bodies, on us. We are known as Christians, as followers of Christ. Are we going to do that as they did? 
does this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Interesting, isn't it? That's the same line that Jesus uses later. He used it twice. He said it here to Jeremiah. And then he said it when he was chasing the moneylenders out of the temple. You have turned it into a den of thieves. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. So the temple, it became this get-out-of-jail-free card, or so they thought. It became no different than the Catholic practice of indulgences. You realize that? This is where this comes from. It's the same mentality here, that we can go sin today and then be forgiven at the temple tomorrow. God says, but now, I'm going to give you an example. Go to Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all of your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. And that, of course, is referring to the ten northern tribes, who had already been this example to Judah, had already been taken away. And Shiloh, the place where God had placed his name, is still, today, there's nothing there. It's empty. God is not there. There's no tabernacle, there's no temple, there's no altar, there's, no, there's nothing. Should be a warning to us, shouldn't it? As the temple of God, if the temple of God, the Solomonic temple, doesn't exist today, then that should be a warning to us about how God considers the importance of how we act in his name. If we become like Israel and Judah, would the righteous God not do the same to us? Would he not make us like Shiloh, like Solomon's temple? But there's more here. There's a little... It's a little more that's going on. You turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. He says, Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, Peter did not bring this scripture up on his own. He's quoting. He's quoting from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. But even the context, this whole passage that we're getting ready to start to, to look into, he didn't come up with it on his own. He heard it from Jesus. And we have that event. Back in the book of Matthew 21, verse 40, uh, 42, Jesus was having a debate with the priests and the Pharisees. And he was telling them in no uncertain terms that their time, their time of being the religious authority from holding all the cards over the people their time was done 
Their opportunity to be the chosen people of God was over. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? Now, we know who the stone is, right? It's Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. But who are the builders? Or who built the temple? Judah built the temple. And these men standing in front of him, these priests, these scribes and these Pharisees, they were the inheritors of those that built the temple. Kind of interesting. That building the temple was maybe a bit of a rejection in some ways. Rejection of the treat, the, the chief cornerstone. Being unwilling, in fact, to yield to God and allow him to build them into a house. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, as Jesus is quoting this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. (laughs) I mean, that's bold. That's a very strong statement of you guys are no longer relevant. It's taken from you. And you know what? I have the authority to take it. Jesus had the authority to take it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. They knew exactly what he was saying. You guys are done. It's going to be given to somebody else. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Quite a moment. Telling this elite group of men that were the leaders of the elite people of God, you guys are done. You're no longer that special. You're no longer the authority. I'm taking the kingdom from you. It's not even a warning, right? It's like what God said about Shiloh. It's, It's not a warning. I'm doing this. This is going to happen. And it did. And I think from this exchange, this dialogue that Peter was able to write and remember as he's writing his letter to the churches. Peter was there. He heard that. He understood what Jesus was saying. And he understood what God and Jesus wanted all along. We are the temple of God. We are his holy dwelling place. We don't make houses for him. He makes us a house. And then makes us into a house for him. When do you suppose this happened, though? Is Jesus... When talking to these priests, said, it's going to be taken from you. But he wasn't doing it right then, was he? There was a moment, a a point in time when that was going to happen. So when do you think it happened? Anybody have any guesses? It's not a trick question. At Pentecost. It happened at Pentecost. 
here's, this, here's why I think that. Because of what we see back in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and in, in Acts chapter 2. Because there are elements here that just connect. That connect very strongly. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 1, after Solomon's great prayer of dedication to the temple. You remember that. And if you haven't read that, you should go and read that. It is a powerful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. And in that prayer, he even says, Will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. He was right. He was right. And yet he built the temple anyway. But then he says this. Well, we read this in, in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 1. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good mercy endures forever. And if we were there, we'd do the same. Wouldn't we? Because this has never happened before. You know, you have all these other tribes and nations around with all their gods and all their temples and all their activities and cutting themselves and sacrificing people. And, and this didn't happen for them. This happened. And God's glory Build this temple. And they recognized in that moment that they were nothing and they could have been just erased from existence. <laughs> and the reason why we're not is because of that. For he is good. And his mercy endures forever. That's why we're not destroyed when this amazing thing happens. But notice. We have a whole house being filled. We have the glory of God manifest to everyone that was there. And we have fire coming down from heaven and consuming the sacrifice. What an incredible sight this must have been. And, and God honored the temple. He did. And he used it. And he put his presence there. And his glory filled that place. And fire burned up the sacrifices. But I imagine what happened on the day of Pentecost was far more satisfying to God. Far more satisfying. Because as we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came the sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then... Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance. We've read this so many times. But you see the elements, right? You see the same elements that were in the temple. The whole house was filled. Just as in the temple. That fire came down fire of the spirit as flames of fire tongues of fire 
just as in the temple. And they, each man and each woman in that place, were filled with the Holy Spirit. God filled their house. He filled their house. And filled that place with his glory. The symbolism is inescapable. God has built himself a house. And this is the moment when they are gathered in one accord, obeying him, as, he, as Jesus told them, wait here, wait here and stay together till this day happens. I think this is the moment when the kingdom was taken from the old builders, from the old keepers, and given to the new This was the moment. And that process continues today. It continues with each man and each woman as they yield their bodies. What does Paul say? As a living sacrifice. Just like at the temple. Just like on Pentecost. With the flames of fire. After Jesus told the priests and the Pharisees that this was going to happen, he immediately goes into the marriage feast. And he tells them the parable of the wedding supper. That further underscores the process of removing the kingdom from one people and giving it to another. And that this was going to happen. And that it has happened. And it is continuing to happen. And nowhere, it's interesting, nowhere in the writings of the early church, none of the writings of Paul or Peter, or any of the others, do we find any instruction at all about building a temple? Now, maybe we don't think that's strange, but I think it's strange, given the fact that if you look at church tradition in the Western world, what have we done? We build these church buildings and I'm not saying we shouldn't have buildings. I mean, we could all meet out in the open in the heat. I'm not saying we shouldn't be practical. But if you go and look at, especially in Europe, and at some of the ancient cathedrals and church buildings, they are designed like the temple. And they run around creating these holy places. They're not holy. The people have been made holy by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They are the house. God has built. And so it is interesting to me that there's no instruction in the New Testament, in the early church, to build a house. They say the opposite, don't they? We are the temple of God. Each one of us, young or old, has been designed to house the spirit of the creator of the universe. He wants to live with you. And each and every one of us. He loves us. And he is building us into his children. And in fact, in many ways, it's probably more accurate to say that we are the tabernacle of God, aren't we? Because right now, we're in this temporary dwelling. We're in these tents. Something which God was perfectly happy to stay in. We realize that, right? David was saying, well, God's living in a tent. He said, that's fine. I want to live in your tent. 
David, Solomon, and many since have missed that point. But we are together being built into that dwelling place for God. But there's also something more. Going back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Peter says, but you, we, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. We are special. We are special. And the, the, the word there in the Greek can be, can be translated peculiar. Some of us are really peculiar. Not me, I'm, I'm very normal. Peculiar, different. We're different from the world. And perhaps in our little church family, we're, we're even different than, than broader Christianity. We're peculiar. We're a little different. That's not the only translation. Because what I think Peter was really driving at was another use of the word. We are a purchased possession. We're purchased. That's the real meaning of the word. We are prized. We are purchased. He spent something real to get us. And he loves that, what he has purchased. Of course, we know that we were purchased by the blood of Jesus spent his own blood to purchase us. So we are this chosen generation, a royal priesthood, his own purchased people. Through this purchase, we have now supplanted the nation of Israel and Judah as the chosen people of God. Do you realize that? Paul will tell you, they are cut off. And they were cut off for a reason. They were cut off for their sins. But they were also cut off. He says what blindness has come in part to Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Israel was moved out of the way. And they serve as an example for us. Of what not to do. But they are cut off right now. Make no mistake. They are cut off. Remember back in Exodus 19. God said some of the very same words to Israel. About being this chosen people. This special people. It says in the third month. After the children of Israel had gone out of the land to Egypt. On the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from uh, Rephidim. And had come to the wilderness of Sinai. And camped in the wilderness. And so Israel camped there before the mountain, before the mountain of Sinai. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus so you, you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I have did, done to the Egyptians, and how, how, how I have borne you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, and you shall be a special treasure above all people for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests a holy nation and these are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel same language same desire on God's part 
he has now made us through his own purchase, through his own blood, that special people. This is yet another role in many ways that has been passed from the nation of Israel and Judah to the church of Jesus Christ. Israel was once this special people. They could not keep the covenant. They didn't accept what God was offering them. He wanted to live amongst them and be in them. But they were not willing to be the house of God. So now, Peter says to us, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Love that passage. Called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He bought us so that he could do this. Who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We are this chosen generation. We are this royal priesthood. We are a holy nation if we abide abide in Christ Jesus. And if he and the Father abides in us. And then we just sung that, didn't we? Abide with me. Live with me. I accept that I am your house and that you are building me into a house for you to dwell in. So I have to disagree with Mr. Jefferson. It's not the United States. It's not some construct of man, even the best construct of man, that will restore life and liberty to a dark and barbarous world. It's not any creation of man. We have been brought bought and made into a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that we can proclaim the praises of him who pulled us out of darkness and put us into his marvelous light. We are here to help to restore to those that are in darkness, restore them to this light. Don't get me wrong. I know that Israel and the whole house of Israel will be brought back in. They will be grafted in, as Paul has told us. They will be grafted in. But they will only be grafted in by recognizing what we already know, what we have already come to understand. They will only be grafted in when they say, what was it that Jesus said? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They need to accept that. They need to understand that that is Christ Jesus, that he is their savior, and they will. Ultimately, I think it is in this new nation, the church, God's special people, that God will really bring to pass what Isaiah says in chapter 58. He says then, in verse 10, show your light, show your... Light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. From those, those from among you 
shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the restorer, the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Why? Because he has bought us. He has made us into his house. He has made us his dwelling place. And he has made us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous.